Let's start in verse 21. And then Jesus crossed again uh, in the boat to the other side of the sea. And a great crowd gathered around him. And he was beside the sea. And, and then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, seeing Jesus, he fell down at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she will be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had this discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch his, even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, uh, You see the crowd pressing around you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing that she had, it, it, what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and said to him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler of the house uh, someone who, who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teach, teacher any far, further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, and the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly outside. And he, when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's uh, father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Teletha kumi, he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she uh, was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we thank you for your, your word, your awesome and powerful word, God, and Jesus, how you moved about on this earth with such power and authority and compassion and in your own timing, God. Thank you that you're in total control, that we can trust you, that you are trustworthy, you are faithful. We can put our faith in you, God. I pray for those that don't believe, that have been so damaged by the church, so damaged by maybe even believing parents, so damaged by what goes on in their own head, that they find it hard to believe in you, lest you burn them as well, lest you hurt them as well. I pray that, God, you would show yourself as a gentle, kind Savior that you are. But I also pray that you would give us faith to trust you. Because, Lord, when we approach you, it's not always our plan. It's not always with what we want. We have to trust you. So I pray you would give us faith to do that. You are so great and awesome, Lord, and pray that you would show us that in your word today. So that you would anoint my mind and my mouth so humbled, Lord, by your word. I thank you for it. I pray you would teach us all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. I want to read you a passage of scripture from Hebrews chapter 11. It's up on the screen if you do not have a Bible. Uh, The ESV says this. This is the definition, the biblical definition of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The NIV puts it this way. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. When we don't see it, we believe anyway. There's a great definition. Uh, If you have an ESV study Bible, on the side there's commentary notes. And this is what the commentary notes say about this passage. I want to read it because I can't say it better than this. It's up on the screen. Biblical faith is not a vague hope grounded in uh, imaginary, wishful thinking. Instead, faith is a settled confidence that something in the future, something that is not yet seen, but has been promised by God will actually come to pass because God will bring it about. Thus, biblical faith is not blind trust in the face of contrary evidence, not an unknowable leap in the dark. Rather, biblical faith is a confident trust in the eternal God who is all-powerful, infinitely wise, eternally trustworthy, the God who has revealed himself in his word and in the person of Jesus Christ, whose promises have been proven true from generation to generation and who will never leave nor forsake his own. That is a wonderful definition of biblical faith. What it means biblically to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. And what we've been doing for the last six months is we've been in the book of Mark looking at the life and the work and the ministry of Jesus the Christ. And last week we came upon this story that we just read. We came upon this story that put this issue of faith to a bit of an extreme. Because if you think about it, if I was to ask you, what is faith? What is your definition of faith? What do you believe faith is? How would you define faith? Is it a complete trust in what God will do? Is it trust in God? It's trust in God and what He will do. What He has promised in His Word and through the person and work of Jesus, is faith putting your trust in God? Or, if I was to ask you this, some of you guys might say something more like this. Is it more of an abstract, vague trust that God will come, that good will come out of every circumstance? Like, what is faith. Well, it's just trust, man. You just got to believe. You got to have faith, like George Michael sang about in the 80s. It's like that, man. You just got to have faith. Faith in what? Faith that things will work out. What is your faith in? Well, it's just in that things will be better at the end. And that's sometimes how people define faith. I just believe. What do you believe in? I believe that things will work out for the better. For whom? For you, for them, for the world, for whom? And then we kind of, what we believe in is we have faith in faith. And that faith means everything will turn out all right. But that's not faith in God. But the other question that that this section begs is this. Does your faith have to be perfect? Does it have to have all the right answers and all the right beliefs to be real faith? And that's why I said this story we read last week pushes the issue of faith to a bit of an extreme. Because the two people that we just read about in Mark's gospel that came to Jesus came with very, very imperfect faith. They came with incomplete faith. They came with almost superstitious faith. Neither Jairus nor the woman's faith was impressive at all. Nor was it perfect. Nor can you point at them and go, have the faith of the woman or have the faith of this man. It wasn't impressive faith. Jairus 
insisted that Jesus go home with him. I mean, this is Jesus who can speak to a hurricane and say, sit down and shut up. And the hurricane goes, okay. Who can speak to a man who's filled with a legion, thousands of demons, who comes out naked and with broken chains all around him. And Jesus goes, be gone. And they're gone. And Jairus goes up to him and goes, you have to come home with me and touch my daughter. There's, a, there's another episode in the Gospels where a healing episode where a centurion Gentile's servant is sick. And this centurion Gentile, emphasis on the Gentile, walks up to Jesus and goes, you don't even have to go to my house, Jesus. If you just say the word, because your word is that powerful, if you just say the word, my servant will be made well. And Jesus said, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. Go home. Your faith has made your servant well. Your faith in me has made your servant well. Go. But Jairus' faith wasn't like that. He walked up to Jesus and said, Jesus, you have to come over to my house. You have to touch my daughter. And what did Jesus say? No. No, dude. Your, your faith isn't there yet. Go home. Get some more faith. Come back when you're ready. He goes with him. He takes, this, he takes Jairus just where he's at. You have faith just, just to believe that I had to go over and touch your daughter? Okay, I'll go with that. Jairus' faith didn't even reach the level of the centurion, Gentile's faith. He begged that Jesus come to his house, and Jesus said yes. And the woman, the woman, her faith was a little on the superstitious side. She just wanted to touch the hem of his garment, not meet him, not talk with Jesus, not even worship Jesus, just reach out and barely touch what he was wearing. And when she did, he knew power went out from him. He asked someone to fess up, and she didn't. She was afraid. She didn't burst out and go, praise the Lord, it was me. Oh my gosh, hallelujah. And then started telling everybody about Jesus. She didn't do that at all. She kind of quietly, with fear and trembling, go, it was, it was me. I did it. It was me. And here's the whole truth. And she tells Jesus the, the whole truth. But what happens is Jesus, what Jesus does is take their little, weak, misguided faith and places it squarely upon him. He uses what he has to work with. You have weak faith, I'll work with weak faith. You have an entry-level baby faith, I'll work with that. You have faith that thinks that if you just come to church on a Sunday, everything will be all right, I'll work with that. I'll start there. You think that just touching my little garment, the, the hem of my garment is going to make you well? All right, I'll start there. And Jesus starts there. He has a superstitious, bleeding woman and a powerful, important religious figure that conditionally believes in Jesus for healing. And Jesus, in essence, says, okay, you want to start there? Let's start there. But I'm going to take you further. I'm going to take you deeper. I'm going to take you to a place of total loss of control. Jesus starts there, but doesn't end there. He starts there. He honors their little bitty faith, but he takes them deeper. And that's what faith and trust in Jesus means. It means that when we trust in Jesus, Jesus will start where we're at, but faith means losing control. Faith means losing control. I know that is like the most unpopular thing to say to a bunch of young urbanites. Lose control. You're like, no way, dude. I'm in control of everything. I'm in control. I've got it down. I know my plan. I know my future. I know my week's schedule down to the minute. I'm in control. And what faith means is this, lose control. Henry Nouwen, 
wrote in a book on Christian leadership after moving from teaching at Harvard to serving at L'Arche, a community for the mentally handicapped, where he served there, the mentally ill. And he wrote a book reflecting on his time there and on Christian leadership, and this is what he wrote. The secular world around us is saying in a loud voice, quote, we can take care of ourselves. We do not need God, the church, or the priest. We are in control, and if we are not, then we have to work harder to get control. The problem is not a lack of faith, but a lack of competence. If you are sick, you need a competent doctor. If you are poor, you need competent politicians. If there are technical problems, you need competent engineers. If there are wars, you need competent negotiators. God, the church, and the minister have been used for centuries to fill the gaps of incompetence. But today, the gaps are being filled in other ways, and we no longer need spiritual answers to practical questions. What Nowen is saying is that we will try, as humans, we will try whatever means necessary to stay in what we believe is in control and not apply real faith in God. We don't need faith. Faith is weak, and it's a sign of weakness. We need to work harder and work smarter and thus stay in control of our own little lives. If that means we hire the best doctors or campaign for the best politicians or buy the best computers, we will. Because the last thing we really want to do is turn to God in faith. We even have sayings for this. Have you ever said anything like this? Well, when all else fails, pray. When you've done all that you can, that all you've can, you can do, whenever you've done everything you can do in your human power, then turn to prayer. Or the only thing left to do is to pray. Or when someone mentions that you should pray about it, we might viscerally respond, even if, if in our minds, has it really come to that? Like, now all I can do is pray now? Has it really come to that? Have I, have I exhausted all my human resources and now the only thing left to do is to pray? But this is exactly the place this woman is at. In Mark chapter 5, verse 25, it says this, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And last week we compared 12-year-old girl and the 12, uh, 12 years this woman has been, had this issue of blood. She's had this issue of blood for 12 years and who suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but actually she grew worse. Now this is interesting because the whole, the Bible typically has a very positive outlook on doctors and physicians. Luke was a doctor who authored both Luke and the book of Acts and was a comp- and accompanied the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys as a personal physician. So why does Mark point out here that she went to every doctor and ended up financially broke and physically worse? Which is very ironic because doctors are supposed to alleviate suffering, not increase suffering. If you go to a doctor and you're worse financially and physically, that's probably not a good doctor. Why does Mark put this here? Well, it wasn't to show that doctors are bad but to show that this woman had a much deeper need. She had a need that no doctor can fix. No matter how competent, no doctor can fix it. And look at the way she was described. She suffered much from many physicians, exhausted all her resources, and gained nothing, but actually got worse. See, there is a need. There is a human felt need that no doctor, no physician, 
no psychologist or psychiatrist can fill, no support group, no coach, no spouse or significant other can meet or alleviate. Only Jesus. And that's what this is pointing to. And this woman, after trying everything and coming up empty, was actually worse, places her faith now in Jesus, places her trust in Jesus. And the thing is this, he's good for it. He did what no one else can do. He healed this woman when everyone else made her worse. But it comes at a cost. She had to lose control. She tried to control this whole situation. She wanted a drive-by healing. She wanted a drive-through healing. She wanted a healing where she just passed by, touched his garment, and then went on her way without knowing Jesus, without following Jesus, nothing. She had a healing in her mind the way she wanted it, all sneaky-like, touching and leaving. And that was it. She's like, hey, this is how I'm, Jesus, if I'm going to go to you, this is how I'm going to go to you. You're not going to know who I am. I'm just going to touch the hem of your garment, and I'm going to be gone. Drive by healing, and I'm out. And that's how this whole thing's going to go down, all right? And then Jairus, he came wanting a healing as well. He said this, hey, Jesus, follow me, touch my daughter, heal my daughter, and let me tell you how this whole thing is going to go. See, both the woman and Jairus, though having faith, went to Jesus with a plan, almost trying to stay in control of the whole situation. They went to Jesus, I'll follow Jesus, but this is how I'll follow him. Okay, I'll follow him, I'll believe in Jesus, but this is how I'm going to believe, and this is how I'm going to follow him. I'll go to Jesus, but for a healing, but this is how it's going to go down. I'm going to touch him, and I'm going to leave, and he's not going to know me. Well, he's going to come to my house, he's going to touch my daughter, and that's it. I'll serve Jesus, but this is what it has to look like. If I serve him, my life has to look like this, and this is how much time I can give each week, and this is what I'm going to do. And Jesus is like this, no. Jesus says, no, I don't want that, I want your life. The woman and Jairus are both with Jesus for about five minutes, and their plans get thrown out of the window. You come to Jesus, he will accept you on our little weak, sometimes our little weak faith, but then he's like, I demand your life. That's a harsh demand, that's pretty big. See, the woman tried to get a drive-by healing done in secret, and Jesus said, nope, you have to go public. Jairus tried to get Jesus over his house for a healing, and Jesus said, nope, you're going to get a resurrection. The reality is when you place your faith in Christ, you have to give to him way more than you planned. But on the other hand, you get from Jesus way more than you ask or imagine. Again, another Henry Nouwen quote. I was on a Henry Nouwen trip this week, so forgive me, but another great quote. Let me quote this to you. To wait open-endedly is an enormously radical attitude toward life. So is to trust that something will happen to us that is far beyond our imaginings. So too is to give up control of our future and letting God define our life, trusting that God molds us according to God's love and not according to our fear. The spiritual life is a life in which we wait, actively present to the moment, trusting that new things will happen to us, new things that are far beyond our own imagination, fantasy or prediction. That, indeed, is a very radical stance toward life in a world preoccupied with control. See, when you trust Christ, you have to lose control, bottom line. 
when you follow Jesus, there has to be a point where you have to lose control. And that might involve a lot of fear. It's scary not to be in control. Can you imagine the fear that must have gripped this woman's heart when Jesus stopped and shouted or said, who touched me? And she just probably heard the disciples going, Jesus, keep on walking, dude. Everybody's touching you. And Jesus, this woman still tries to slip away. He goes, no, somebody touched me. I, I felt power leave from me. I felt weakness being absorbed. Who touched me? And this woman knew it. And the fear that must have gripped her stomach, like that kind of fear that makes you want to almost throw up on the spot, that sort of fear in the pit of your stomach. And the fear that happened when someone from Jairus' house came up to him and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher any longer. And your daughter is dead because Jesus delayed, by the way. If Jesus wouldn't have stopped to talk to this woman, your daughter would be alive right now. Your daughter is dead. And the fear that must have gripped, the crippling fear that must have gripped his heart to lose all control of the situation at that moment. He was in control. He had, things were going his way. We know how that feels. When everything starts to go our way, the plans that we had for our life starts to fall in exactly as planned. And they stop, and they all come crumbling down. And he looks at Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and says, do not fear, but keep on believing. Do not fear, but keep on believing. The Apostle Paul, before he was a Christian, his name was then Saul, who went on to author most of the New Testament, a lot of the New Testament, I should say. He was, before he was a Christian, he was a persecutor, persecutor of the church. He had Christians arrested, killed, and whatever else he can do from stopping people from loving and following and preaching Jesus, whatever he can do to stop them, he did. But then he met Jesus. And he had to let go of his old life. He had to relinquish control. And this is how he put it in the book of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, by trust, by belief in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The way Paul put it, he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. He no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. And this new life he lives now, it's by faith in Jesus. It's by faith, trust, a total loss of control, and trust in Jesus. And Jesus is good for it because Jesus loved him and died for him. And Paul says that you're not really even alive until Christ is alive inside of you. That's real life. But something has to happen. You have to die. You have to give up control. You have to trust Jesus. Not academically believe that Jesus died for your sins, but really trust in Jesus. Trust him and go public. Trust him and believe that his timing, that Jesus' timing, even when things die, is better than your timing. Scripture calls this taking up your cross and following him. Jesus also calls it being crucified with him. He calls it denying yourself. In chapter 8 of the book of Mark, we'll get there in some time. In, in chapter 8 of Mark's gospel, there's this huge turn in the story. Jesus is now moving towards the cross. Everyone right now is following him. Everyone's around him. But the, story, the whole story turns in chapter 8. And then Jesus is now going to the cross. And this now, when he goes to the cross, he's talking about the cross nonstop. 
And in chapter 8, he tells his disciples, hey, I'm going to the cross. I will suffer and die. And Peter goes, the heck you will. You're not going to die. I have a sword. I will protect you. I got your back. There's no way you're going anywhere. And Jesus calls him Satan. You are Satan. And he says, get behind me. Now, not, what that means is get behind me, not just get behind me, like get behind me, get out of my way, I'm going to the cross, but also get behind me and follow me because I'm going there and you're going with me. Because look at what it says in verse 34, just three verses later. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is the inbreaking kingdom of God. It's death. It's called the way from here on out in the book of Mark. People follow Jesus on the way to the cross. The way up is down in the kingdom of God. The way to get life is to lose your life. The way to greatness is through service. This is why putting your faith in Jesus means giving up control. Because that's not how you and I would do it. We would get, go up in life by going up in life. We would become great in life by being great in life. But the kingdom of God is absolutely different. It's a total loss of control. And it's hard to give up control. It's hard to give up control of your life. We all have our things. We all have our little worlds that we love to control. You will realize how much you love control when you get married. And I cannot wait till that happens. When you guys get married, you're going to realize, especially the first like three years of marriage, you're going to realize how much of a selfish control freak sinner you are when you're married. Marriage is awesome and great and wonderful, and it's a beautiful sanctifying agent because it shows you every single day how selfish you really are and how much you need Jesus. And it goes on forever. I cannot wait to sit down and laugh at, I mean, laugh with you when you counsel, and you're like, oh, this is what she will do and not do, and this is it doing this and that. And I'm going to laugh and go, you got to give up control. you got to die. And guy, you got to die first. Because you, the Bible says that that's what you have to do in Ephesians chapter 5. You die. So die. This is what happens in marriage. Our, my wife and I, our first year of marriage, we learned a lot. And we're still learning a lot. But I'm kind of a control freak. I'm kind of... OCD, maybe, maybe. And I love organized, everything has to have its place, all this other stuff. And um, it was our, one of our first days that we did laundry together, and we did like clean sheet day together and that sort of thing, and we're putting the sheets back on the bed, and I'm like, I look at my wife, I'm like, aren't you, aren't you going to iron the sheets? And she's like, you want me to iron your sheets? I'm like, no, 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 we could both do it. I mean, but aren't we going to iron the sheets? She's like, you're a freak. I'm never going to iron the sheets. You won't iron the sheets either. The sheets will not be ironed. They're sheets. And in my mind, I'm like, well, the sheet, the clean sheets, I don't know, iron sheets. And this is what I did when I had my own apartment. I'm like, I would, she goes, you used to iron your sheets? I'm like, what? I mean, I don't know, maybe. She's like, you will not do that. It's over. Your sheet ironing days are over. So they're over, and, you know, it's a great thing. It's, I'm liberated. I've seen the light. And you don't got your sheets. But you realize, when, especially when you're married, how much control you want in your life, how much control you want over your schedule and your time and the way you want things to be done. 
We all control our own little worlds. And that's, I know that's a silly illustration, but here's the reality. The things that you think control your life actually control you. The things that you think control, that you use to control your life, well, this is how I control my life, and this is how I control my life. Actually, they control you. Look at another quote. Look at this quote. Whatever controls us, this is so profound, whatever controls us is really our God. The one who seeks power is controlled by power. The one who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. Jesus' ownership of our lives is not a control that manipulates us or takes away our dignity. He governs our lives by being who he is without compromise and by insisting that we become all that we are meant to be. And this can only occur through following him, obeying him, and maintaining a living, passionate kinship to him. God created us for himself. If we live with any center other than Jesus, we will be living incompletely. Is Jesus' desire to be the Lord of our lives some little fetish of his? Why is it so important to him? Besides the fact that he deserves it because of who he is, he knows he is the only one in the universe who can control us without destroying us. No one will ever love you like Jesus. The last breath Jesus breathed on this planet was for you. Jesus will meet you wherever you are, and he will help you. He is not intimidated by your past failures, broken promises, or wounds. He will make sense out of your brokenness. But he can only begin to be the Lord of your life today. Not next month, but now. That is so profound. I mean, did you hear that? Jesus is the only one in the universe who can control us without destroying us. Everything else we look to as our little saviors to control our lives, ways that we deal and we cope with life, can and often does destroy us. I mean, think about it. In your own life right now, what do you use to cope? What do you use in your life as a coping mechanism? How do you cope with life's harsh realities? When it gets really, really difficult, what do you look to to cope with life? Or what do you look to when, when your life gets really mundane or boring or even challenging? What is your coping mechanism? Is it food? Do you turn to food? Are you an emotional eater? Are you turn to a drink? you turn to a bottle of wine? What do you use? Music? Retail therapy, which is a very, very real thing. Like, I just need to buy something right now. If I just bought something, my life would be better. People think that, and they feel that way. Now, you might turn to your computer or a relationship or a career path. Those things that you look to to cope are actually your functional saviors. They're the ways that really save you from your own personal hell. Like, I'm in a personal hell right now, and I need a savior. And that savior is wine. That savior is the bar. That savior is my computer. That savior is my credit card to go shopping downtown. That is my functional savior. The problem is, none of those things can really save you. They actually have the potential to destroy you, and that's the irony. Food has the potential of destroying you. Food is awesome. I love food. But looking to food as your savior, your way to cope, your way to deal, destroys you. Turns into eating disorders and obesity. Or retail therapy can destroy you. New things are so fun. But debt is not fun. Being broke is not fun. Drinking can destroy you. A good glass of wine, if you're into that, can be an awesome, wonderful, 
and very biblical thing. But when you look to that to save you and to deliver you from whatever hellish day you had at work or your life is being so disrupted and destructive that you need this to turn to this or it's your liquid courage or whatever, when you look to that to save you, it's destructive. The things that are typically good for us and healthy are horrible saviors. They can't support the weight of the human soul. Do you think Pap's Blue Ribbon can support the weight of a human soul? That's stupid. Do you think new genes can support the weight of a human soul? That's idiotic. That's why, that, like we just read that quote, only Jesus can handle the weight of a human soul without absolutely destroying you. When you look to these things that are great things in and of themselves, but they're horrible saviors. That's why Mark points out the fact that she went to every doctor and only got worse because she needed a savior. Actually, what Jesus says to the woman, daughter, your faith has made you well, can also be translated literally, daughter, your faith has saved you. Same word, your faith has saved you. And this is why Jesus stopped her. And this is why Jesus delayed the healing of Jairus' daughter. They and us needed to see that it was the object of their faith that opened the door to the power of God. It was their faith in Jesus that did it. So faith must have an object. Faith must have an object. For the woman, it was the grasp of her faith rather than her hand that secured the healing that she sought. Her touch had brought together two elements, faith and Jesus, and that's why it was effective in healing her. We must put our faith and our trust in Jesus because not everyone is healed. Let me just tell you that right now. We believe this. We believe that God does heal. He heals today. We talked about this last week. God does heal today, but not everybody is healed. This is only a temporary healing. This girl would be raised from the dead to die again. Not everyone is healed. Our faith isn't in healing because what if you aren't healed? What if we aren't healed? Our faith isn't even in faith because what if what we believed was going to happen doesn't? What if our life plan doesn't unfold like we thought when we told ourselves over and over, just keep the faith, everything will be fine? What if things aren't fine? Our faith must be in Jesus because things might die. People might die, jobs, opportunities, relationships might die, and if the object of our faith isn't in Jesus, you will look to something else to cope and to deal with life, but nothing else can support the weight of your human soul. Nothing else can control your life without destroying you, only Jesus. Jesus went and healed this little girl. Jesus said, Jairus, keep believing. The faith that you came to me with at the very beginning, keep it now. Keep believing in me. And he had to believe Jesus, not for a healing, but for a resurrection, which was a lot more faith. But Jairus did. Went to his house, and he raised her from the dead. Jesus has this sort of power, but Jesus doesn't always heal. That's why our faith must be in him. Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the Reformation in the 14th century, Martin Luther, his beloved daughter Magdalena, when she was 14 years old, was stricken with, a pl- with the plague. Broken-hearted, Luther knelt beside her bed and begged God to release her from her pain. 
Luther prayed, God, heal my daughter, heal my 14-year-old daughter, and she died. This is Martin Luther, and she died. And when she did, the carpenters came to put her in the coffin and to hammer the lid shut of her coffin. And when they were nailing down the lid of her coffin and Luther could hear the pounding of the nails, he screamed out, hammer away, on doomsday she will rise again. That's faith and hope and trust in Jesus. Not in healing, not in faith in Jesus. This is why our faith, the object of our faith, must be squarely upon Christ. The object of our faith must be Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you are the only one that can handle the weight of our soul. You're the only one that we can really find true joy in. We thank you for all the other great and wonderful things that you've given us in this life, food and, and drink and love and relationships and doctors and family and friends and all these great things, but none of them can handle the weight of our soul, only you. None of them can control us without destroying us, only you. And so I pray we would put our faith in you, Jesus, and our trust in you, God, that you would be the object of our faith and we would look to nothing else to save us, only you. In Jesus' name, amen.